HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. Learn more at forevercheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and my guest today is quite unusual for me. Um, His name is Eric Andrus, and he is a small commercial rice grower practicing the Igamo, or duck rice method, in the Champlain Valley of Vermont. You wouldn't have thought Vermont being a hotbed of rice growing. Eric came to farming through an interest in language, culture, and ecology, very interesting, and has discovered in rice farming a way to enhance forgotten spaces in the northeastern landscape while helping people discover the taste of local rice. And by the way, I want some of your rice. Okay. So you have to tell us how, at the end of the show, you'll tell us how we can access it. I know I saw on your website that you've sold out uh, for 2022, but I'm hoping 2023 will bring you a, a bumper crop. We're certainly getting plenty of rain. You won't have to worry about drought. Not yet, anyway. Yeah, not yet. Yeah, right. Good point. So I heard about you uh, through my pal, Eric Hoffner, who is an editor at Manga Bay Times. I just want to give him a shout out. A longtime listener and frequent uh, feeder of guests to me, uh, you being one of them. Uh, Manga Bay Times people, if you are not familiar with or you haven't heard me proselytize about it in the past, it's an amazing publication that covers environmental and ecological issues around the world. Always really, really well-researched, well-written articles with lots of information that you're going to care about. So, um, so Eric, let's talk about duck rice farming. First of all, how did you find out about it? Well, um, so I never thought at the outset that I would end up being a rice farmer. Uh, my interest <laughs> in getting into farming was uh, originally... Uh, wheat and barley and bread and beer and those kinds of sort of more, um, you know, European originated, uh, foodstuffs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I, I, I w- always wanted to do something with cereals. Um, and many years ago, uh, around the year 2000, I, I lived in, uh, the Northern part of Japan, uh, for a year, nothing oh, farm related, although I did tour some farms at the time and <clears throat> I couldn't help but notice that the Japanese have a very organized way of cropping rice in a temperate climate. Um, 
the part of Japan where I lived, Miyagi Prefecture, has a sort of uh, Pennsylvania-like climate, I guess mm-hmm. you could say. Snows in the winter, uh, warm and muggy in the summer. Right. Um, so I sort of filed that away, but I never thought that I would take an interest in doing that type of farming commercially until um, my wife and I bought this uh, current piece of land that we live on and just noticed uh, a lot of water pooling on the flatlands. Uh, and also we were dealing with the fact that our land has very heavy clay soils that don't grow other crops like uh, wheat and barley very well at all. Uh-huh. And so I started thinking back on Japan and like, well, maybe we could grow rice. And um, here in the local diners, like when the cornfields were flooded and the soybeans were struggling, the farmers would say like, oh, we ought to be growing rice. And, uh, really, you know, they hadn't lived in northern Japan, but I had. And I was like, well, actually, yes, we should be growing rice. but. Right. At that time, I had no idea how to begin. So that missing piece of how to begin came from uh, farmers Takeshi and Linda Akaogi in uh, southern Vermont. They did a little citizen science project asking the question, could you grow Japanese varieties of rice in the Japanese way in the Vermont climate and have a crop? And their answer was yes. And at the end of that, they published a booklet, which remains to this day one of the uh, best sources of information for people getting started with rice on a small scale. And it answered all my questions about how to begin doing this. Well, fascinating. And the most interesting part about this from the consumer point of view is the um, symbiosis between young ducks and your rice plants. So can you tell us what the Aigamo method really represents? Yeah, so the Aigamo method is a multi-species form of agriculture that has its roots back in Asia um, several thousand years. It's not exactly clear when, but uh, there are very old woodcuts of ducks being managed in rice fields. And... uh, it was known at that time that ducks would stir up the soil and water around the rice, uh, but would not damage the growing rice leaves uh, Mm -hmm. because uh, leaves, the rice leaves have silica and ducks find them unpalatable. And the ancient Chinese didn't know what silica was, but they knew that the ducks would leave the plants alone. So, uh, Yeah, and nowadays the duck rice method has been uh, refined and modernized and adapted to several different countries and cultures executed in different ways. And we're adapting it to New England. Well, what kinds of adaptations do you have to deploy? Um, Because it seems pretty straightforward to me. You you unleash a bunch of small ducks, young ducklings, basically, right? Um, Because I read on your website, they have to be small, otherwise they might damage the growing plant. So you want these light, little, tiny critters to be busy with their busyness, um, stirring up the soil and eating weeds. And so how how have you had to adapt um, that method from a Japanese context to a, you know, Vermont context for for like whatever? Well, uh, it's incredibly... uh, 
tricky to manage the health of so many very small ducklings that uh, are turned out at a very young age uh, forces the farmer to assume the role of being the duck mother to hundreds ah, of ducks at once. And right. uh, they, uh, they're hatched to not knowing anything. Um, they don't know what the ground is and what the sky is and what water is. <laughs> and you have to sort of like help them through all that and get Aww. them to, to start doing work uh, and being ducks <laughs> and uh, hopefully having that result in greater and better food production. Uh, you have to start, you have to sort of think like a duck and um, uh, it's, it's really challenging. The, and the part that is sort of locally specific is managing for the types of uh, weather events and predator events that are mm. unique to our place right. and not all that transferable from uh, mentors overseas who might advise me who have different pressures. Right. Sure. I mean, because here we have coyotes, fisher cats, minks, otters, mm-hmm. all of them critters are living in, you know, where you are. Is yeah. that what they, what's that what they is considered the Northern Kingdom? In Vermont, where you are? Uh, no, no. The Champlain nope. Valley is its own region. Oh, Champlain the Northeast Valley, Kingdom is uh, mm. sort of uh, more more mountainous and uh, uh, sort of northern Connecticut River Valley side. I but see. I got gotcha. you. The landscape around here is is uh, typified by pretty flat, uh, slightly rolling uh, landscapes. But we occupy what used to be the lake bed of Lake Champlain when it was bigger. Oh. Uh, and now it's just sort of a big clay plain. Right. And then we have a second location uh, that we're farming now, which is uh, next to a small river that flows out of the foothills of the Green Mountains. Oh, well, that, that should mitigate some of the drought issues that you have seen in the past years. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so to go back to the ducks for a minute, because, of course, everybody loves the cute story about the ducks. I mean, yeah. certainly I do. Um, yeah. Is there a specific breed of duck that you use? And also, what do you do? You just like get like many clutches of duck eggs from a breeder and then you yeah, hatch them uh, in an incubator and then they imprint on you. Yeah, uh, we used to get them in the mail, uh, <laughs> which is actually the, it's the most common way for people to get uh, hatchlings is to get them by mail order. Wow. Uh, and there's a variety of places around the country that that breed poultry and send them by mail. Uh, which results in a very urgent phone call from the post office at 6.30 in the morning. Like, <laughs> we have birds here. <laughs> like, they really want them gone. And they can hear as them soon as... peeping gently in their little cardboard box. That yeah, they, they are not happy with them in the post office. Uh, right. They want me to come get them right away. But actually, uh, through networking with world practitioners in the duck rice movement, which doesn't have a massive membership, but the people who do it are very interesting and friendly. Uh, Mm -hmm. A Frenchman who does the duck rice method uh, put me onto the breed that we use now, Mm -hmm. uh, which are called Moulards. Oh, M-O-U-L-A-R-D, that breed? Yeah, M-U-L-A-R-D. That's a meat bird. I mean, I always think of that as a meat bird. Yeah, it's a meat bird. So the the female Moulards... um, are not quite as big as the males and they're more active and uh, they 
They are not the highest scoring foraging duck that you can get, but they're pretty good. Mm. And their health is extremely robust. They're not as susceptible to getting wet, getting cold, um, that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. uh, they, they have done really well. And um, one of the problems we used to have is the type of ducks that we would raise were just not very suitable for uh, meat birds and difficult to sell even as laying ducks because there wasn't enough of a market to even sell them for laying ducks. Right. Um, so, and then of course, like if you get straight run ducklings, what do you do with the several hundred male ducks uh, that for which there's not much of a market? So now that we've switched to moulards, it solves all those problems because they're all females mm. and they're the type of females that would never lay eggs because moulards are a hybrid duck. Huh. Um, yeah. So they're, they're bred in Canada uh, by a hatchery that we work with. And we, the, the hatchery in Canada has a truck that comes down to uh, New York State once a week. And we meet right. that truck along its route and we get our year's supply of ducklings. Oh, wow. And you only need the ducklings as for, you know, right, basically right after you plant your, your, yeah, uh, a, your crop, right? And then just for yeah, a few, uh, however long it takes, how long does it take for rice to grow from plant to harvest? So there's an annual cycle that's pretty well fixed on the calendar. So mm -hmm. we have to keep with the program, whatever the weather is doing as best we can. And, um, we actually have, right at this moment, we have rice growing in the nursery that's maybe about an inch and a half tall. Ah. And the ducks will be, the ducks for that crop will be hatched at right about the same day when that rice crop is transplanted to the field. Wow. So it's so, really split second yeah. timing because as soon as you transplant to the field, you want to keep that first of all, the sediment moving and you want to keep the weed right. population <laughs> subdued. Yeah, yeah, you really should not not be waiting longer than 10 days to introduce ducks. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and uh, that's and that's one of the things we really learned. It's like, it's it's just an incredibly busy time of year because yeah. we're, we're working really hard to transplant the field and then we have to rapidly put up duck fence and um, manage these hatchling ducks and um then introduce them to the field really quickly how many ducks so are we talking not... about eric just uh, you know it's about I'm trying to visualize to the acre right so uh we're going to be raising uh i think 600 ducks this year holy smokes <laughs> yeah it's a lot of ducks that's a lot of ducks and how many and that's a lot of duck manure i i had ducks as a child yeah, yeah. um so I, I understand that they spend a lot of their time in the paddy, but when mm -hmm. they're not, that's, I mean, wow. Ducks are a messy bird, people. Messy, yeah. messy bird. Um, yes. They produce copiously and it's messy and gross. I mean, I used to torture my friend. If I got sick of a friend who had stayed too long on the weekend, I was telling you what a terrible person I am right now. But um but but I would give them my duck, Jesse, to hold, and he didn't like anybody to touch him but me, and they, he would instantly evacuate all over them. 
It was a very yeah. good method of getting people to go home. Let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm just saying, well, like that duck manure is substantial. What do you do? You find other applications for it besides your rice patties? So roughly, so the mular ducks, um, they will spend uh, about seven weeks in the rice paddy. And during that time, uh, most of the time, they'll be in or near the water. Mm -hmm. So that manure disposal problem is actually a huge asset uh, to the farmer. Right. And um, th uh, we have uh, these sort of uh, shelters uh, that have a uh, slatted steel floor. Uh, right. So that poop will go in the water too. Um, I see. Once the rice starts to come into ears, uh, we have to withdraw the ducks from the rice paddies so that they don't eat the developing grain. Right, because of course so they, they will would not love eat that, the rice leaves, it? but they will eat the rice grain. Right. So that that pretty much caps the amount of time the ducks can spend in the field, uh, you know, to about seven weeks or so. Mm -hmm. And then do you slaughter them for and sell them? Or, I mean, because you can't, yeah, uh, we take can't be them keeping to 600 ducks. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, the moulards make really great uh, eating ducks. They, uh, yeah. Um, once they're out of the patty, we, uh, you know, finish them in a barnyard setting and then mm -hmm. uh, take them to market when, uh, when they're ready. And do they eat corn? I mean, I'm sorry to get so granular uh, about the ducks. It's just a chicken but, you know. broiler uh, ration. I see. Mm -hmm. So we just give them a field with some open space and access to all the food they want. And they right. just go to town. Fantastic. I mean. Yeah. I mean, well, know. the funny thing is like the the ducks really have to, I mean, we do feed them a supplement when they're down in the patties because so many growing ducks crowded into relatively small amount of rice paddy they're really looking hard to find bugs and weeds that they can mm -hmm. eat um but by most estimates they get about 50 percent of their daily nutritional needs from the environment mm -hmm. and the remaining 50 percent we go down and feed them from buckets and mm -hmm. that also helps uh the grower to maintain a bond with the ducks uh sure. so that they're uh they'll always come when you call um, right so they'll follow follow us anywhere we go. Mm -hmm. Now, how delicious. I mean, I don't know if I want 600 ducks following me, but that's a pretty cute idea. I mean, a, pretty, yeah, cute, a cute yeah. visual, you know, think of you yeah, and your in wife. In the beginning, I usually <laughs> sing to them. So there's Aww. like a really, really clear cue. Uh, uh, but then like once they get really uh, behaviorally conditioned, then you don't even have to do that. Just the sound of like a car door is enough to like make them all start swarming. Oh, um, really? <laughs> What a so very, very attached to humans. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, they're and, very um, personable. I love ducks. My one of my yeah, best well, friends the funny grows thing a lot is, of ducks like, here. Yeah, yeah. I used to raise chickens, and mm -hmm. raising chickens over time made me like chickens less than I did when I started. Really, and um, raising ducks makes me like ducks more than when I started. So right. I think like duck, the duck is my my spirit animal. I, well, I mean, to go on a small tangent here, I was listening to National Public Radio, all things considered, last night on my way back from, you know, whatever. And they had a segment with a homeless man whose mm -hmm. life had been absolutely redeemed 
he was living on a creek in I don't know where, California, Oregon, or something like that. And, uh, you know, under a overpass and there was a creek very nearby and he began going down to the creek just to like watch the water go by. And, and this black duck uh, began coming and, and, you know, he noticed this black duck and they sort of made eye contact. And then the next day when he woke up at his campsite, the duck was there watching mm-hmm. him sleep. And after that, he and the duck were inseparable for several huh. years. And then the duck probably met its maker through a predator or something like that. Right. But it, it absolutely transformed this man's life. And he had a total bond with the duck. Totally fascinating little story. It just, you know, yeah. put a tear to my eye. It was really charming. <clears throat> the Mullards, anyway. I have to admit, like, they, they're, they're a little weird as far as ducks go <laughs> uh, because they're hybrids. Yeah. There's another breed of duck that I'm really interested in exploring in the future um, mm-hmm. called a silver apple yard. And we had about a dozen of them here one year. And those ducks are really adorable. Like, they're, the Mullards, like, once they realize you don't have any food, they kind of will go off and do their own thing. They sure. just don't really seem that personable. But the Moulards were just like, they like to kind of come up and, you know, brush up against you, cuddle you a little bit, you know, and kind of Aww. stick around and see like, hey, what you doing? You know, just right. friendly. Um, yeah, I really like those those silver apple yards. Silver apple yards, people. Get yourself a couple yeah, of a silver apple yards. beautiful duck. I bet. Beautiful duck. They are a beautiful duck. But they're bird. very rare. Really? Well, we have to take a short break now for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Eric Andrews talking more about um, the symbiosis between ducks and rice farming and also more broadly about rice farming in the United States and where that might lead us uh, in terms of getting our food system re-regionalized and reconfigured. Stay tuned. Forever Cheese, a leading importer of cheese and specialty food, has sourced exceptional products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia for 25 years. Offering a wide selection of artisan cheese, charcuterie, nuts, crackers, preserves, and more, their products are sold in stores nationwide. Forever Cheese seeks out the best of the Mediterranean and focuses on sharing stories from their family of producers. Each product has a unique story, and their goal is to celebrate each one. From drunken goat to genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mostarda to Mitica Marcona almonds, and Duya to Jamon Iberico, Forever Cheese is proud to offer products they love from people they believe in. Their passion, quality, and range are unmatched. Learn more at forevercheese.com and look for their products in a grocery store, restaurant, or specialty food shop near you. Okay, so we were just talking about the adorableness of ducks. We can't deny that. But um, we should move on and talk a little bit about um, some of the rice varieties and also, like, for instance, I always thought rice was, I mean, everybody, I think, mostly thinks of rice as a hot weather. You know, like in Vietnam, they grow a lot of rice. In India, obviously, they grow a lot of rice. China, in the warmer areas. But you're you're able to grow rice in a pretty cold climate up there. Um, so... Obviously, it doesn't take too long for the growing season. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to manage this, right? But are there other, like, what is the variety you grow now and what other varieties could be grown? So rice is divided into a few, two species and some subspecies. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the Oryza sativa comprises the 
Asian varieties of rice. Uh, so a rice sativa indica is all of your long grain and aromatic rices. Like Wait, these uh, are pot terms. This is marijuana hmm? language. Marijuana is is sativa and... Um, but the, the, the family name is Oriza. So oh, that's right. rice. So, okay. um, yeah, uh, or, yeah, genus name. Yeah. Uh, so... But how Arisa interesting sat- that... Yeah, sativa, I, I think... I'm not sure what the Latin is for that, but... Uh, and indica Arisa is... Sat- you said indica and sativa are both no, rice No, no, Oriza sativa. Oriza the sativa. subspecies for Asia is indica. Oriza sativa... Indica. Uh-huh. And then I see, okay. for the northern Asian rice, it's Oriza sativa japonica. I got it. Okay. So the japonicas are all of your uh, short grain and medium grain rice. Mm-hmm. So most, maybe not 100%, but 99.9% of the rice that we can grow in our climate zone is going to be Oriza sativa japonica. I see. So that's like nishiki rice, like you would use for uh, making um, sushi, right? Or sashimi. Yeah, similar to that from a culinary perspective, Mm -hmm. generally Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a sticky rice. Yeah, it's slightly self-adhesive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. High starch content. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. And would you ever be able to grow wild rice using this method, for example? Uh, so we have wild rice growing in our yeah. immediate area. It grows in the sort of uh, riverine estuaries and shallow bays of Lake huh? Champlain. Um, there's some challenges in trying to grow rice as a managed crop because it it tends to want to grow as a community of plants in which it produces well maybe one year out of three. So... Uh. Um, the the main real virtue of wild rice is as a wild harvested food mm-hmm. and to my understanding the harvest of wild rice is an economic underpinning to a lot of uh indigenous uh, peoples that's so, certainly um, true yes yeah i think that it's it's fine in that niche and um uh but for one that wants to cultivate rice year in year out the Oriza um, uh, sativa is kind of the go-to, mm-hmm. easier mm-hmm. easier to manage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it, it bears every year, and you and you can yeah. actually manage it. It's not a wild product. Also, I think wild rice is not a true rice. It is some other form. Of, no, it's it's a, they're both grasses, but the similarity ends there. Right, yeah. I got you. It, it looks totally different. Yeah, completely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the climate and, and soil conditions that are necessary for growing rice. Because I'm just wondering, like, could this be expanded? I know we grow rice in other parts of the country, mm-hmm. but we don't grow it in patties necessarily, do we? Well, uh, patties of a sort. So um, generally, the rice industry in North America has tended to find places that are very broad and very flat where, um, you know, hundreds or thousands of adjacent acres can be engineered for rice with usually large equipment, consolidated Mm -hmm. processing, and um, 
not a hundred percent, but uh, like a very heavy dependence on herbicide and um, you know other chemicals. chemical farming approaches. Right. Well, there was a big. I'm sure you saw this being a rice farmer, but what you know, maybe as much as seven or eight years ago, huge controversy about the amount of arsenic in rice cereal for babies, because apparently for many years they were using arsenic as one of the pesticides or herbicides. Yeah, well, also in rice arsenic fields. is very persistent and it's in natural. soil. It's a natural. Yeah, so yeah, and there's both. Well. It's a complicated issue. There's both natural mm-hmm. and synthetic arsenic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, yeah, I I understand that a lot of lands that have been converted to rice production in recent years mm-hmm. had prior land use either in commercial cotton or in commercial orcharding, uh, with arsenic being applied to them as far back as the 30s or 40s when wow. people were using DDT like it was going out of style. Right, right, right. And that can show up. Uh, rice is, is very ready to vector any synthetic arsenic that's already present in the soil, no matter mm-hmm. how long it's been there. So that's... Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And they were also treating chickens with arsenic uh, for coccidiosis, mm. as I recall, and then spraying that manure on fields as well. And that was... Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm all up on the meat side of this. <laughs> Not so good on the row crops, but all up on the meat. Um, So when you have a drought, which you described on your website, um, that you had a really tough year, I think it was 2020, so the beginning of the pandemic, which was hard for, you know, of course, everybody suffered in very many ways. You suffered a serious drought. What, what, you basically lost your whole crop. Like, so that's, that's a sort of a scary situation because how much water can you pump into a patty? Right. And where yeah. do you get it? Like if you don't have because now you have the other field that's near a creek or a small river, but this original fields were not. And that obviously had a huge impact on you. Are you able to have you figured out a way to manage that uh, more effectively in future drought? Because obviously this is not going to go away as a problem. Yeah, we think so. So um, for the home farm in a normal year, we have plenty of water hanging around on the landscape, Mm -hmm. but we don't have a uh, a source of flowing water that never dries up. I see. Usually in a normal summer, uh, we will have uh, flowing water cease usually by around uh, July or August. Mm -hmm. And I dug a large storage pond that I thought would be recharged enough times during the summer that I would be able to get through the irrigation season with it. And uh, several times since I dug it, uh, I'd drawn the pond quite low. And in 2020, I drew it down completely. There was nothing left in the bottom. And um, uh, what I decided was that since I can't really enhance water collection or storage for the pond any further, mm-hmm. I just had to reduce the number of acres that I was committing to growing from that pond. I see. So um, we are going to be planting some acres here at home um, this year, but most of the acres are in uh, the new site 
where we uh-huh. have a flowing water source that would not dry up, not even in a drought. Right. Well, that's comforting to hear. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the, um, you know, the the sort of uh, ecological benefits to rice farming in Vermont, because you were saying, you know, it's like a, a magnet to other species. It brought a lot of other waterfowl in and yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Give us a little uh, p- uh, paint a picture of that for us. Yeah. So in in a really simplistic way of explaining um, ecology, uh, there you can say that there's oh, uh, like maybe a few major types of biome. There's open water, there's marshland, there's woods, and there's open grassland. And those being the major ones that are around us. Mm-hmm. And the more edge effect you have where one of those will border another, the more biodiversity you can have. So of those types of biome, what we're really lacking in the Northeast, because so many of them have been destroyed over the ages, is uh, wetland. Because wetlands have generally been converted to agriculture wherever possible Mm. many Mm -hmm. years ago. So we just don't have that much, uh, that much wetland. And I feel like uh, when you create it, you have a convergence of species that are predisposed to taking shelter or foraging in that environment. And just by creating a little bit of wetland, you have almost instant transformation of the level of activity going on. Mm, Amazing. Um, It's just anecdotal, but that's what I've noticed. Um, Obviously, there is is wildlife in a grass uh, hayfield as well, but it doesn't jump out at you the way that it does in a, a wetland setting. And, uh, you know, I consider rice farming a type of managed, man-made wetland. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we have uh, three different types of herons and, and a type of egret that all forage regularly in the rice paddies. And it's just uh, really cool to be working around those animals. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So now once you harvest this, because I, I see we're getting kind of in the weeds here in terms of time. Once you harvest, what do you do with it? Did you have to buy a lot of equipment uh, to make this, you know, a, cr- a crop that converts into a product that goes onto store shelves? I mean, what, what's that yeah. process about? So um, the Akaokis gave me a handbook for how to get started growing rice on a small scale, but they didn't provide that many hands-on solutions for trying to make a business out of it. That was never really their goal. <laughs> but I made it I made it my goal. And uh, I found out that in Japan, farmers are already very well equipped for these technical challenges. And mm-hmm. many farmers process and direct market their own rice harvest. Mm-hmm. And all of the devices that you need to do this at any commercial scale uh, appropriate to a family farm, uh, they are available off the shelf uh, in Japan. So the only challenge is 
putting them in shipping containers and bringing those <laughs> solutions to here where we can right. use them. So right, right. I operate my farm technically basically the same way a uh, Japanese farm would be operated. Same machines, mm-hmm. same approach. I see. Yeah. So what do you do? You have to like thresh out the rice grains and then they have to be sorted or polished or? Yeah, at harvest time, um, there's a combine harvester that goes through the field Mm -hmm. and the combine harvester transfers its harvested grain into a uh, grain carrying truck and the truck transfers its grain into a rice dryer. The rice is then dried down to an appropriate moisture level and then the hull is taken off that rice by a rice huller. Mm-hmm. And after that point, you have brown rice. Okay. And um, the brown rice can be further refined into white rice. Sure, right, that we're all familiar with. Although we should all eat the brown rice, right? Isn't that the best part? Because you lose yeah, the, although, the germ uh, or the brand. If you were to ask whatever. most Japanese people, they would say that they prefer the taste of white rice and that they get plenty of fiber and vitamins from all the many vegetables that people eat in their diet there. Sure, right. But in America, where we don't have that diet, <laughs> yeah. we, we actually well, we do, do here. It. We do here at our farm. <laughs> we eat some pretty amazing lunches sometimes. I uh, bet uh, you do. Absolutely. <laughs> do you have other farmers joining you? Because like in Japan, you described it as more of a sort of, mm, I wouldn't say co-op, but like, you know, people work together. Uh, maybe do they buy equipment together? Would you ever do that? Like I'm trying to... Well, this is one of my uh, career goals is to Mm -hmm. help create a grower community around this crop because we've gotten as far as we have sort of taking the lead and taking a lot of risks and trying to uh, lean directly on mentors in Japan and, uh, you know, create our own system because no one else was going to create it for us. Mm-hmm. But uh, I feel that for long-term success growing rice in this landscape, it's best done with colleagues. And mm-hmm. I would love to have more colleagues and uh, to share what we've learned with them. And I also, I'm not afraid of the competition. I feel like the first, uh, you know, thousand people that get into this at the scale that we're at will find plenty of market in their Mm -hmm. neighborhood. So I'm not worried about that. I think more people should be doing this. Mm. And um, I'm currently working with uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension to help uh, develop a working public visitable model in New York State. Cool. So uh, that will be uh, ready to be announced fairly shortly. The there's production happening in New York State now, too. Wonderful. So yeah. I, we should probably tell people how they can. I mean, I, I have a million more questions, but I'm not going to <laughs> I'm not going to torture you any further. But um, where do you sell your rice? Are you selling it into stores? Are you selling it on a website? Like, how can people access this? So um, we do all our marketing directly. We don't sell to any uh commercial processor because there is none. Uh, We are our own processor and we do all sales direct, both wholesale and retail. Mm -hmm. I would say that uh, close to half of our customers are people who 
order direct from the farm in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So usually starting late summer, we open our website, which is www.vermontrice.net, open the store for advance ordering of uh, orders to be picked up on the farm. Mm -hmm. And usually around harvest time, we'll add an additional feature into the website where we do uh, mail order uh mail orders of, of rice, which come mm-hmm. in five, 14, and 24 pound sizes. Wow. That's a lot of rice. Although I certainly yeah. eat 24 pounds of rice a year, I'm sure. Fascinating. Yeah. Eric, this is really interesting. And, and it's, you know, it's important to sort of reconnect the idea that, you know, commercial productivity is not necessarily tied to uh, pesticides, herbicides, and large-scale, uh, you know, heavy equipment, right? I mean, isn't that sort of the ultimate lesson of this project Yeah, of yours? well, this is a way to get uh, individual, look, for one thing, in the case of the Northeast, it's the it's an opportunity for farmers to take some of their least economically productive land and yeah. make it into their most economically productive land. Uh, and, you know, you create homes for all of these interesting creatures in the process right? and uh, offer a type of food that is not um, not in our palate of things that we consider possible in the Northeast yet. Right. It could be. It could be. Wonderful. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my uh, You know, I hope we'll, we can talk again as things kind of expand. You know, please uh, keep me posted if something develops that you want to blow up on the radio such as it is. So, Um, I really appreciate your time. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, as always. And thanks to my listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Until then. What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.